Oh, amen. It is sure good to be with y'all, um, especially when grief hits uh, with the loss of Muhammad. You know, not just a great man, but a friend of mine and will be missed. And so uh, we're going to dive into the sermon. I'm a little emotional, but I'm going to get through it. It'll be fine. I think this sermon uh, in some ways honors the legacy of the man. So um, yeah, let's get into it. We have talked for 27 weeks about the minor prophets. Um, And I know for some of you, it's been very affirming because you've been like, this is so great. I've never opened these pages of my Bible and it's so helpful to like walk through them and you've really enjoyed it and you've given me that feedback and that's very helpful. Some of you, I want to say, have been, uh, let's say, playfully bored during this series. Um, I heard uh, someone told me Kitty Smith compared the minor prophets to a minor league baseball team. (laughs) I don't totally know what that means, but it's like maybe you buy season tickets to minor league baseball, but you're not going to show up for every game. And I've seen that sometimes. Uh, You don't show up for every sermon. Uh, But I want to dive in and maybe draw some conclusions from this. If nothing else, I hope we're all walking away with a little bit more clarity about this part of the Bible, how it works, and what it means to be God's people. Uh, The question is what remains to be said. Um, And I think there's a lot that we could say. We could study them for much longer than 27 weeks, so you're getting off easy. Um, But uh, we're not going to. I just want to take a step back from the individual prophets and consider the narrative of what all of the prophets together are somehow teaching us and maybe what it means for you and I. And uh, it's tied to our understanding of Scripture. You know, it's not enough to read the Bible. You have to understand the Bible a little bit in order to understand what God's saying to you through it. And that's where I want to start. It is tempting but wrong to think about the Bible as a book. It's tempting but wrong to think about the Bible as a book because that is not, in fact, what it is. Now, I understand why we think of it that way because if you have a look at it, it looks like a book, right? It reads like a book. You can read it as one book, but that is not, in fact, what it is. What the Bible is is a library of books. Does that make sense? It is a library of books. There are 66 of them, and there's a number of ways to divide them up, even within some books. You might even argue that there are multiple books within individual books. For visual aid, I'm going to just assemble our little library here. The Bible starts with the Torah. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. After the Torah comes the books of the history of Israel, and that's the beginning of the Bible. Then we get to Some really fascinating books we haven't looked at in quite some time here at Pulverock, but books of poetry right there in the middle of Scripture. Uh, After that comes what we've been looking at, the prophets. That's what's next, and that is the Old Testament. Those four sections together, and there's other ways to divide that up, but I would say those are the primary sections in the Old Testament. Now, when you get to the New Testament... Um, Again, you can divide it up in lots of different ways. I will divide it in two ways. You have the Gospels, which is the story of the life of Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament is basically some version of letters. Even the book of Revelation, which you think of as like this prophecy book, it really is written to the early believers and it's written to churches. And so that is kind of the library there. 66 books, maybe even more divisions within that. There's a lot of ways that you could look at it. I think it is important that we see the Bible as a library, not as an individual book, because if we think of the Bible as a book, we might be tempted to believe something about it that is not in fact true. We might be tempted to believe that God wrote it. 
If it's a book, it has an author. Who's the author of the Bible? God, must be, right? And we might be tempted to think that way, like it's some sort of Ouija board situation where your hands are moving without your control and the authors are just pinning exactly what God wants them to pin. Uh, But not only is that a weird way to think about the Bible and a weird way to think about God, I think it minimizes the actual miracle that the scriptures are. Instead of like uh, an exorcist-style possession of biblical authors, what actually happened is the Bible is inspired by God, not written by God. And that's a very distinct and different word. What that means is over the course of about 1,500 years, so 1,500 years, the Holy Spirit partnered with about 35 to 40 human minds to inspire what they wrote. And so what they're writing is something that is aligned with their personality, with their experience, with their worldview, with their situation. And yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit is doing something so that the words that are being written are somehow timeless and pointing to bigger themes that connect across the library which is even a better miracle, I think, than the Ouija board thing. If you want the technical terms for this, the Bible wasn't written by divine fiat, meaning God just made it happen. That's not how it was written. God did not possess anyone to write a book of the Bible. The Bible was written as the inspired word of God, meaning the Holy Spirit was working through very real humans just like you and I. So just like with a real library, if you go to the library and you pull two different books off the shelf, and you read those books, you're going to expect that those books are going to be about different things. They're different authors, and they would be writing about things from their different perspective as people. And that's what you get in the Bible. Books of the Bible have vastly different approaches, and the authors are seeking to do vastly different things. And so we have to understand what the authors are seeking to do, the context they're writing in, so that we can hear from God through their words. If you've learned nothing else in the 27 weeks. I hope that that has been demonstrated time and time again. You have to get into the moment of Scripture to understand Scripture correctly. Like if we don't do that, if we just approach all of Scripture like as if it's all the same, that's how cults start. Honestly, it is how cults have started. But more importantly, I think it disrespects the miracle that Scripture is like where God is speaking to and through humans in the midst of their lived experience. That's how he's speaking. And so part of the miracle is this, that God is speaking through people to their specific times. And we can read about that and we can say, wow, that's miraculous what he says to these people. And we can learn something from it for ourselves. But here's the other part of the miracle that is just as important. Written over 1,500 years through about 40 authors, each of whom trying to write to their specific moment in history, to their specific world, yet miracle of all miracles, the Bible also tells one cohesive story. Isn't that astounding? I mean, imagine if you were to walk into a library and, you know, you got all the books on the shelf and you start pulling books off and just reading them one at a time. And you're like, oh, these are all distinct books about distinct things written by distinct authors. And yet somehow, miraculously, you put them all together and it's one giant narrative that stretches out over 1,500 years of writing. Pretty miraculous. So when you take a book off the shelf in the Bible, 
to read and you say, hey, what is this book about? There's at least two ways to look at it. Every book in the Bible, you could look at these two ways. You could look at it in the moment where you're seeing God interacting in the times the author is living in, and we can learn a lot from that. Or we could look at the greater story that is unfolding over the uh, arc of human history, right? Where God's weaving something together, uh, redemptive across human history. And what's really fascinating is when you start looking for those things, you discover that in the Bible, there's all of these like epic themes that stretch across the whole library, and yet they're also being applied to the specific moment. Let me give you one example of this just to see how cool it is. Let's take the first word of the Bible right? And let's take one of the last words of the Bible. So these are words separated by 1,500 years of history, okay? The first word of the Bible is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth... Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so it's talking about the creativity of God hovering over the sea that is in chaos, that is nothing, it's formless, and God is present in the midst of that formlessness, and the sea represents all of the chaos that we face every single day. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And that seems like just a random thing, like all the oceans have dried up or what, until you understand what the sea means over in Genesis 1 and you see that 1,500 years later, there is this uh, disciple of Jesus, John, writing and predicting that one day what started with a creative act is going to end with a recreative act, only this time the chaos of the waters is not going to be present because God has removed it for good, right? Pretty epic. Pretty cool. We could talk for hours about that. Um, now, we're not going to. Um, <laughs> come on, someone said. Um, I want to talk about another one of these epic themes because there's a bunch of them. And I think one of the epic themes that specifically involves our minor prophets is this epic theme that stretches over the library of, about the concept of human community about the concept of culture, about the concept of human society. Humans, as you know, we're social creatures. And so what that means, among other things, is we clump, right? <laughs> we stick together in some way, even when we're frustrated with each other. And that's been true from the beginning. Now, early on in the Torah, in fact, in chapter 11 of Genesis, you can look it up yourself, uh, there is a story about this that we call the Tower of Babel. You may be familiar with the story. It's short. It's really weird. Uh, you probably skip over it really fast and say, huh, that's odd, and get to the next part, where is God talking to Abraham? But it's the beginning of one of these huge, epic, thematic arcs that unfolds over the course of the entire library. As the story goes... All of the humans are together and they gather in what is modern day Iraq and they, they gather because they all speak the same language at this point in human history, right? Uh, and they say this, uh, verse 4 of Genesis 11, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, that seems like a harmless enough statement. Who would have a problem with that? Well, what they're really saying is this. Theologically, what they're saying is if we can work together, if we can make this place great, 
right? Then we'll, ma- we'll name ourselves in a way that is independent from God. Like we don't need him anymore. And so it's a story of humans coming together in a pretty dramatic way. They're depending on each other, but they're depending on each other because they don't want to be dependent upon God. And so while there's interdependence with people, it's not healthy interdependence. It's not based on love. It's actually based on task and ambition. And the task was to build something and make our names great so that we can live free of this God who is the only source of love. So God shows up and he says, wow, look at, look at you. You guys have done something here. And uh, he makes this observation. If they all have one unified language, there will be no end to the things that they can build independent of God. And isn't that true? Like we can build some remarkable things independent of God. We can do some incredible things as humans without God. Only here's the thing. There's something that's true about us and something that's true about God. The thing that's true about us is we were meant for love, not just accomplishment, right? We were meant for love, not just accomplishment. And so when we do this, this babble thing, and we accomplish something great independent of the only source of love, which is God, the thing that we accomplish actually becomes this weird dehumanizing mutation of what we were actually meant for because it's apart from the God of love. And the things we accomplish when we accomplish them apart from love, actually they wind up enslaving us. Think about this. We are the only species on earth who can accomplish something so that we have every need and desire met and we're still unhappy. Have you ever met a successful person who's unhappy? It's like an archetype in our culture, right? Animals are not like that. Give your dog everything he needs and wants, he will be happy, right? We are the ones who can accomplish things and then we're like, why am I so unhappy? Well, because if we accomplish it apart from the God of love, we're doing something that fundamentally we weren't created to do. We were created for love. And here's the thing about God. The nature of God's love, it's not like human love. It is unconditional, meaning he doesn't value people because of what they can accomplish, right? That's our thing as humans. Like we value people based on what you can accomplish. This is why the prophets speak so often about exploiting the poor and the powerless. Because when you exploit the poor and the powerless, what you are saying is you have no value outside of how you can help me accomplish my thing, right? That's what we do. God is not like that. God values people because he is loving, because that's his nature. And what he wants from human society is that human society reflects that nature of God. And so the problem with Babel, and like really all of the Babels we built, no matter what they look like, all of the Babels, is apart from the source of real love, we humans, we make it about building that tower higher. And whatever that tower represents, we're just, you only have value if you can build that tower, if you can help me with the tower. So God shows up in Genesis 11, he says, wow, look at what they can accomplish, um, independent of me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to confuse their languages. And so he does something, and he divides one language into multiple languages. And in a sense, this is God creating nationalities and ethnicities, 
right? And when you turn the page over to Genesis 12, the next thing he does is he chooses one of these nationalities, uh, the father of one of these nationalities, a man named Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham. And he says, I'm going to enter into a special covenantal relationship with you people, right? And that's the rest of the Old Testament. But this epic theme starts with us humans demonstrating this remarkable capacity that we have to create incredible things apart from God, but those things actually wind up dehumanizing us and enslaving us in a way that God never intended for us because we were intended for love. You see this throughout all of Scripture. You see it throughout all of human history. Think about it. I mean, all of us, we want the same thing. All of us. Like we want love, we want our needs met, we want a a, a community where there's freedom given. If all seven plus billion of us want the same thing, why have we been unable to figure it out? Why is it so elusive to us as a species? Well, because the only way to experience the we all long for is to center it on Jesus. The only way to experience the community we all long for is to center it on Jesus. And even then, right, it's no picnic, right? We still are sinners and broken. So one of the epic arcs of Scripture starts in Genesis 11, goes to the end, and continues to this day. Is God saying to us again and again, hey, guys, I want this for you too. I created you to long for this sort of community. And if you would just trust me, center on me, then you'd be able to step into this together. Now, that's why he gives uh, a few chapters later the descendants of Abraham the law, right? The law is often easy to misunderstood. The Hebrews call the law the Torah. They're just referring to these first few books of the Old Testament. Another way to translate that word Torah is with the English word instruction. I kind of like that better than law because it's kind of like God trying to explain to us how something works, right? It's like, here's the instructions. He's trying to explain, hey, here's how you make your relationship with me and with one another work together so you can have the thing that I created you to want and that you all long for. He's trying to explain how do we make love, mercy, compassion, humility, justice come to life in our midst. And so the Old Testament, those first four sections of scripture is really about this nation who is failing to consistently create this loving community despite having the instructions. That's the story. Now, what's remarkable is you get to the New Testament. And all of a sudden in the New Testament, after the Gospels and the book of Acts, this community starts to form. And it is astounding. It is everything that it was promised to be. Love and mercy, compassion, justice, humility. Jesus is at the center of it. Because it's not formed because they get all the instructions so right. Nor is it formed because of their ethnic and national identity. It is formed solely because of faith in Jesus Christ. And what's so remarkable about that moment is the first moment that it forms, what happens as a sign? Everyone speaks in their own national language, but they can understand one another. It's the reversal of Genesis 11 in Babel. And God's saying, now, now, centered on Jesus, you can have this community. And that's true in the early church, right? The the believers had that community when it was centered on Jesus. And when they drifted from that, when they focused on other things like keeping the law or arguing over doctrine or their own desire for accomplishment, then that community became just like every other Babel that's ever existed. 
Even though they were talking about Jesus, it was independent of him. But when it was centered on Jesus, it was this beautiful picture of human society. Jesus at the center. This loving society that's so elusive began to grow. And the long story that I will make really short is it became the largest, most long-lasting movement in human history. More sustainable than any kingdom or empire and larger than most of them put together kingdom of God. And that's what we're a part of today. Now, the minor prophets, that's what we're talking about, right? They fall between Babel and this new community. And they're formed around Jesus, or I'm sorry, the new community is formed around Jesus and act. The minor prophets are not aware of Jesus yet, so they're just telling the story of these humans who are kind of stumbling with the instructions, trying to form a good society based on the law or the Torah that God had given them. But time and time again, Instead of trusting God, what do they do? They say, well, we want to trust a king, or we want to trust our military might, or we want to trust treaties, or we want to trust affluence and wealth. We want to get as much of that as we can get. Um, Sometimes they trust foreign gods, and they say, what if we depended on those, anything except God? And they're just, again and again, they're reliving Babel. And so God sends these people called prophets And what the prophets show up and say, basically, if you were to sum all of them up, the prophets had one message. It was trust the God of love to build a nation centered on love, mercy, compassion, and justice. And gosh, if I would have thought of that last fall, I would have saved us 27 weeks. But that's, I mean, that's really what they're all saying in a variety of ways. But you'll note this, they're speaking to the epic arc about human society, but they're also speaking to a specific moment in time. We went through them uh, chronologically. We started with Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah is not a story about a fish. It is a story about God's people wrestling with the idea that God would give grace to people they don't like. It's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale about thinking that in your arrogance that you're the ones who have it figured out and so you're worthy of God's grace, but nobody else is. Then we got to Amos. Amos is an angry book about how uh, justice for everyone really matters to God and about how if we're comfortable while other people are being exploited and being treated unjustly, then we're against God's in some way and God is against us in some way. Hosea is a powerful metaphor. It teaches us that God's love triumphs over our unfaithfulness, and surely it does. It teaches us that God never really wanted to be our master. He always only wanted a love relationship with us. Micah is about power. It's about the misuse of power. How we use idols is a shortcut to get the things we want, those longings of our heart. And God says, no, guys, build something with me through mercy and justice and humility. Nahum is about how seriously God takes love and mercy towards other humans. It's about this idea that God's wrath is interpreted by his love. What he gets angry at is when we are unloving. That's his issue. Zephaniah is about how God judges us when we're complacent, when we're indifferent, how he calls us again and again to the highest form of love. He calls us to something that we long for, the highest form of love, and he calls us to not only demonstrate it to others, but to experience it for ourselves. Habakkuk is all about asking hard questions. It's about being willing to wrestle with God when his vision has not yet come to pass and how sometimes, unfortunately, part of this journey with God is a willingness to wait 
for the vision of God and for the longing of your heart. Obadiah. Um, Obadiah is about not pridefully elevating ourselves over our weird cousins in the faith. You know, just because we think we understand spiritual things better than they do, we still should not elevate ourselves. And I don't want to get all braggy here, but I think most people agreed it was the best sermon on Obadiah they'd ever heard. <laughs> Can we disagree with that? Um, Joel is about those locusts. There's always locusts, aren't there? And the, Joel is this incredible book that teaches us that when those locusts take from us, we have to grieve. We have to realize it's God's faithfulness that delivers us. It's not our ability to get it right, but it's his faithfulness. Haggai is all about what it means to be the people of God, how only he will satisfy us. That's why we have to bring our thirst to him. Zechariah is about trusting we have a future, not relying on our religious activity and penance to be right with God, but trusting that he has made a future for us. And because of that, we resist Babel and we build the kingdom of God with him. Malachi is all about God reminding the people about the beautiful dream of God. Remember, he's saying, remember what I made you for. Remember what you long for. And they want to argue, and he's like, would you just remember the dream that we had once together? And that's the Minor Prophets. And what you see is again and again how they're just speaking to their times. There's real people that they're thinking about when they write, but also somehow because of the Holy Spirit, it is connected to this epic theme of human community in Scripture. And they're saying, do not build another Babel. You know how that ends. Make God the center. That's what the prophets teach. Really, what the prophets reveal is they're teaching the utter hopelessness of all human societies. If you're a student of history, you know that is true. Hopeless. And the intense beauty of the society of God's kingdom. This may be where you and I come in. Um, This epic theme, it arcs across the library of scripture, but it also arcs across all of human history into our moment in time. And I think what it's saying to us is this, there has only ever been two kingdoms, only. There's been Babel and there's been the kingdom of God. That's all that has ever been, right? And Babel has a different name every time we build it, but it's out there. The kingdom of God is centered on Jesus. And with Jesus at the center of the kingdom of God, we don't just have the instruction saying, hey, would you do it like this? But we have the life of God living in us. We have his forgiveness that frees us, right? His forgiveness frees us to forgive ourselves and to forgive one another, which is central to being able to be a society. We have his spirit that leads us to wisdom and we have security with him that calms our fears so we can finally see one another. Without Jesus at the center, what the prophets teach us is uh, the same thing that our, our lives will teach us. If you look back over your life, this will be confirmed. Babel is always disappointing, isn't it? It's just always disappointing. No matter what we build, no matter how high we manage to get that tower, no matter what that tower represents for us, all of those human idols that we chase after, like if we build anything that is not centered on Jesus, at best... It will disappoint us. And at worst, it will dehumanize us and control us and lead us to exploit others as we chase those deep longings in our heart. 
turn us into the sort of person that we would never want to be. And the prophets are trying to spare us from that, spare us from wasting our life in Babel, commissioning us to be agents in the kingdom of Jesus, to undermine the tower of Babel with the kingdom of God, this kingdom built on unconditional love and abundant mercy and compassion for humans and justice for every person. So ultimately, I think here's where we are. This epic arc of Scripture is now left to us, right? This is not the final chapter, I don't think. Um, I have to re-listen to my sermon on the end times. I don't think it's the final chapter. This is just our chapter, right? Our story, yours and mine. And this book is either going to be about how we settle for Babel and how we chase after the best that we can build in our lives, or it's going to be the story of how we get caught up And the epic tale of the kingdom of God, of living in community with Jesus at the center. And so the question at the end of all of this is just what story are you going to write? That's what the prophets have been driving you towards. What story are you going to write? Now I will say this, the kingdom of God is the story that's going to win. We don't even have to doubt that. Look at the last 2,000 years. The kingdom of God will win and every nation will fail and every tower of Babel will collapse. It's not stoppable, the kingdom of God. But also what the prophets teach us is that it is stoppable in your life. Like you can miss it. You can build your tower and miss out on the epic narrative of redemption that's unfolding over human history. And so we have this capacity, just like the people of God did in the prophetic times, to miss the epic narrative. But if we take it seriously and put Jesus at the center of our life, nothing else, just him and and his kingdom, then we become the people, the prophets long to see this new Jerusalem community redeemed by our loving Savior and redeeming every society that we find ourselves in. And that's the dream of the prophets. That's the plan of God all along. Let's do something weird. Um, here's what I want to do as we close. Um, it's not weird. It's fine. It's just a little risky. Uh, not real risky. It's fine. <laughs> here's what I, I want you to see the brilliance of God's plan and how it involves you. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to list uh, a few areas of human society And if you are operating or invested in one of those areas, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I know like that's like, oh no, I'm not going to embarrass you. And spoiler alert, probably most of us will be standing by the end of this. So don't worry about it. Just just go with it for a second. Okay, so here's here's what we're going to start with. Um, If you are invested right now in the area of human education, okay? So if you work as a teacher in some way or you volunteer in that area or if you're a student, if that's your primary occupation in life is the area of learning and education, would you just stand up for a second? Stay standing, okay? Awesome. You start with the the teachers because they're like, I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate y'all. Y'all have had a hard couple years, I tell you. Education's been hard. Okay, let's talk about the world of business for a second. If you are in the area of business, so buying, selling, manufacturing goods and services, engineering, any of that sort of stuff, would you just stand up for a moment? Stay standing, okay? 
If you were in uh, what I'm going to just call the service industry, so healthcare, military, contracting with the military, uh, government, first responders, law, all of those things that serve humanity, would you stand? If you are in ministry, which can be a big one in our town, meaning working with churches or faith-based people, would you stand? And then lastly, and this I think is a really important one, if you're in what I'm going to call the social sector, meaning if you are raising children, caring for aging parents, if you are retired and free from the burden of a nine-to-five job just to focus on people, would you stand? Okay, so here's what I want us to do. Look up at this list and look around this room for a second. I would make a case that these, uh, you could divide it differently, but on some level, these are the building blocks of every human society. These were the things that existed when the minor prophets were writing, right? These are the things that existed when the Tower of Babel was being built, right? These are the building blocks of society. Now, here's what I want to point out. If God wanted to drastically and forever change the way we humans clump together in society, and I think he clearly does, if he wanted to get people to see what they were created for and to see how those longings that he put in their heart could actually be met, if he wanted them to see what a life centered on Jesus could be, if he wanted them to see how to live in love and mercy and compassion and justice and humility, you know what would be a far better strategy than sending a prophet? It would be to position billions of normal people in all of the building blocks of society across the entire globe, living lives centered on Jesus Christ and demonstrating to the world what it would look like for earth to be as it is in heaven. That's a strategy that will work. It's a strategy that is working. And what I want to suggest is he has perfectly positioned you to play a part in the most epic arc of redemption of human society that you could ever imagine. And if all of us played that part, like really embraced it, really centered our life on Jesus, asked that question daily, then, then when we were dead and gone, we would be handing off a world that looked a lot more like the kingdom and a lot less like Babel to the next generation. You, my friends, have an extraordinary calling. That's what the prophets teach us. And the calling is to stop building Babel. We know how it ends. It's deeply disappointing. And to start investing your life in the kingdom of God by making Jesus the center of your life as if he is the only hope we have for anything good because as it turns out, he is. Jesus has only ever had love for you. And when it comes to this idea of community, he sees like what you long for in your heart. He sees it, and he's redeemed you, and he's saved you, but he hasn't just saved you. He's involved you in something that's been unfolding for 3,500 years, and it's pretty epic, and it's pretty spectacular, and because of his love for you, we get to be the answer that the prophets long to see and write one more chapter of this epic story. So, Lord, I come to you, and I lift up my friends here, I ask that they never again would see themselves as just some ordinary person, but that they would see themselves as the answer 
for your redemptive ark here on earth. God, we know that you are going to do it and we know that we can miss out on it. So Lord, I just ask that you give each of us the courage to step into it, to ask the hard questions, to center our life on you as if it is the only hope we have for anything good, Lord. I give them to you and I ask that you give them courage. May we see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.